Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. And thanks, as always, real quick to our subscribers, particularly our newest subscribers. And we want to ask all our subscribers, or even if you don't subscribe yet, if you'll take just a moment right now on whatever podcast platform you're on, just leave us a rating and a review. We really like the five-star kind, of course, but we trust your judgment. We appreciate it because it really helps us out. Well, there's no shortage of virtual ink being spilled right now over the idea that Democrats are in big trouble in November. And look, there's a lot of evidence to show that that's probably true. As I point out in my new Newsweek article, which is coming up right now, if you're listening to this anytime after November, November, after May 24th, you can find that on Newsweek. And what I point out is that the president's party has almost always bled seats in the midterms. And we all know that this year, just a handful of losses means that Democrats lose their majorities in Congress. And we also know that even presidents with sky-high approval ratings, a net approval, meaning your approval rating is 30 points higher than your disapproval, even presidents in that enviable position lose an average of three House seats. But President Biden's approval rating is 11 points underwater. His disapproval is much higher. Folks, the Democrats are not in a good position. And I could just go down the list, the litany of indicators showing that this is going to be a problem. Well, if the old saying is being forewarned is being forearmed, the idea being that if you see a train barreling down the tracks at you, you should be able to get off those tracks, then what should Democrats who are in elected office right now be doing? Is there anything that members of Congress in the House and Senate can do in terms of their official actions, their legislative actions, what they say to try to head off this, what looks like a looming disaster in November. We wanted to pose that question to one of our favorite guests, Ryan McConaughey, who was U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's former right-hand man on the connection between policy and politics, having worked to set the policy agenda for Democratic senators in the U.S. Senate. He's now at Forbes Tate, and he continues to provide advice to top advocacy groups all across America, but we're fortunate to have landed him here to be our internal guru. Ryan, welcome back to Beyond Politics. And I, I'm kind of looking forward to this little brainstorming session on what the heck Democrats can do right now. Yeah, it's great to be back. Great to see, see you both. And it's, it's certainly, you, you laid out the environment very well. And I think it's, uh, that's what members of Congress do, both in the leadership and the rank and file. I think it, it starts with acknowledging that, look, in, we, the situation you were referring to was 2014. It was right after President Obama was reelected. We had a Democratic majority. In the midterms, you're heading into to, you're, you're an uphill battle, typically by history. You have an economic climate where we're getting really mixed economic signals. The, you know, job, the job numbers are great. Growth has been pretty strong up until recently, but inflation is obviously top of mind for people. And there's a general sense of frustration. So members need to really, one of, one of the things I think at the leadership level and the individual level members will be doing is trying to balance, reminding people that progress has been made, good things have been done. And actually, when you look back over the past 18 months, Democrats do have a, a track record to talk about. And I think they'll do that. But also you need to be responsive to the fact that people are frustrated and that there are certain things that just shouldn't happen in this country, like maybe formula shortages and with the war in Ukraine, gas prices are up. So, so you have to be you have to figure out a way to be responsive to the environment without forgetting that you did do some good things that you should be bragging about along the way. 
Well, actually, I want to turn that into a question to both of you, because you've both been in this position, Ryan, as a key advisor to the Democratic leader in the Senate. You were talking about 2014, when we were in a very similar political environment. And then, Paul, I'm going to I'm just going to preview. I'm going to turn this around as a question to you as well, because you've been on the ballot as a member of Congress, both in a good cycle and a bad cycle. But Ryan, you first, just maybe take us back for a second to your mindset in 2014. Not a good cycle. You see the train approaching on the tracks. What were you thinking about? What were the discussions like? You're, you're, you're talking to Chuck. You're, you're talking to U.S. senators who are on the ballot and are nervous and are asking the question, what can we do to give them some, some ammo to go into the election with? What, what was that like? What were those conversations like? Sure. Well, I think that what, there was a balance, and I think you're going to see this balance play out, and you're seeing it play out this year, between what the top-line contrasts are, because the election is always you versus the opponent, So, and, and, and they are individual statewide races, but they do have the party brand. So what, what were we doing? What could we show that our values were? How could we still create that contrast in terms of who controls the majority of Congress? And that's where some of the, some, some of the votes on legislation come in on key priorities we did in 2014. We did a series of bills as part of the Fair Shot agenda. It was everything from paycheck fairness to small business credits to bring manufacturing, reshoring tax credits to bring jobs home act. So we had an agenda there that we consistently worked through that we could not get to 60 on because of Republican opposition. And so, but we, but we, were, we were making the case for what our agenda was and creating that contrast. And the second thing was, I remember that August of that month was a particularly brutal time. You had, it was, it was Ebola stacked on the Middle East, stacked on gas prices. There was a, there was a crisis in uh, veterans healthcare and it just seemed like the hits kept coming. And, and that's where it really, where you need to, to help on the fly or in the moment say, okay, what are the policy tools that we have? How can we help members, whether or not it's legislation, whether or not it's writing to agencies, you've got to show that you're, you're aware this is a problem. You've got a solution for it. You're fighting for that solution. Well, a lot of echoes in what you just said to the situation that Democrats and we all are in right now. So, Paul, same question over to you. You ran for re-election in 2008, which was a good cycle for Democrats, although we were facing soaring gas prices that summer. That was definitely an issue on the agenda. You also ran in 2010 for U.S. Senate, a legendarily crappy cycle for Democrats. So, Take us back. What do you remember from those two cycles and your own thinking, the kinds of conversations you were having with the same cast of characters now, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, leaders in the House, about what you needed in order to, and by the way, our advisor from the White House, the, our liaison to the White House, to the Obama White House in your U.S. Senate race was current press secretary for the White House, Karine Jean-Pierre. So we were having those conversations. What do you remember from those conversations about facing those two cycles that stands out to you? Well, obviously they were two very different cycles. In 2008, it was still, still okay for me to be a member of Congress. It was, I could talk about things I had done, but actually the, the, the things that had the most impact in 2008 were not the big pieces of legislation, were not the big accomplishments. Uh, because if I recall correctly, in my first term, I was able to pass Michelle's Law, which was a healthcare, healthcare reform bill that was the precursor to the Kids 
kids under 25 can stay on their parents' policy in the ultimate 2010 healthcare legislation. But in 2008, that was good news, right? I had accomplished something big that had started in New Hampshire in my home state and brought it to the feds and been able to pass it and have it signed by George Bush. So it kind of burnished some bipartisan credentials. But the thing that was really important had nothing to do with any legislation. It had to do with bringing back to New Hampshire a dog from Iraq that had been adopted by a fallen soldier, a hero who had adopted this dog on the streets of Iraq. And through an incredible effort by my staff, we got DHL to and veterinarians in Germany and everywhere else to, 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 to get the dog back to New Hampshire, where the dog was reunited with our fallen soldier's family. And that, at least in 2008, I think was what really cemented in people's minds, hey, this guy can get something done. Not only is he getting something done, he's doing something for a military family. And it had heartwarming, I think it got some national press. So it was exactly the kind of thing that had more to do with communicating emotions than it had to do with communicating anything practical. It wasn't about an agenda. It wasn't about messaging. It wasn't, the message was built in and it went right to the heart for people. Now let's turn to 2010 when I had the temerity to give up my um, congressional seat despite advice from lots of people and decide to run for the U.S. Senate. I mean, we had an Obama historic presidency. It turned out that the senator wasn't going to run. I had an open field. And so here I went. I jumped into the U.S. Senate campaign. Well, if I had it all over to do all over again, I don't know, I might still have done it because because it was such a bad year. People were so upset about health care that it became a real challenge to run. It was a challenge so that what we could do was try everything. And you had to try every single possible thing, including was I a congressman? Well, maybe, but maybe I wasn't really a congressman. Maybe I never even mentioned that I knew anything about having been in Washington. And what had I done about health care? Well, maybe I supported it, but not exactly as it was coming down the pike. I really wanted something a lot better, and I was doing everything I could to make it better. And so you, in a bad year, you're, you're pushing a rock up a hill and the rock is not just a pebble, it's a boulder. So we tried to keep our heads down to um, avoid incoming fire where it seemed better to keep uh, our heads down. And then we tried to pick our, pick our battles and make the best of a media strategy that we could, earning media for sometimes appearing in places where it looked like we were out in public a lot. But for people who have memories, 2010 was, was unlike, unlike any, any cycle in a really, really long time. It was, it was in a way, the, the true beginning 
of the kind of, of tribalism and insanity we now see in our politics. Well, there's a lot to pick up on in what you just said. And I, I, I think I heard a smattering of different strategies that individual members of Congress can try and that leadership groups like Ryan, you used to be sitting in the room with the leadership in the Senate, can try to apply. You can try and do individual storytelling. You can, you can show that you're getting things done. I mean, Paul, in that 2008 race, you ran an ad based on your casework for a vet who came back from Iraq and had been blown up in a Humvee and you got him veterans benefits. And you did run an ad on your Michelle's law. So it was a mixture. It was a mixture of casework and a legislative accomplishment. And you can also try to just make yourself sound likable. That's what your, the, the previous occupant of your seat, the Republican Charlie Bass, his best ad, his most effective ad, I know because I've talked to his pollsters, former chief of staff, was just him going around saying, oh, I, I know Charlie Bass. I like Charlie Bass. So there's a, there's a variety of things that you can do. And as you said, it seems like the, 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 the guidance that comes, I, I used to work closely with a, a guy named Jim Papa, who has a great podcast. He worked for Rahm Emanuel at the time. And he used to kind of grab all of us chiefs of staff, put us in a room and say, you, you just, you have to do everything. You have to do absolutely everything and see what will stick. All right, that's a launching pad to Ryan. You had a little brainstormed hit list before we got on the air. Actually, Paul, I'll let you ask the first one, but there were a series of things that, that you think, Ryan, that people can do. Yeah, I mean, Ryan, you you talked about suggested that one thing Democrat, Democrats can do is pick fights, right, and go on offense on issues that we choose as opposed to they choose. So, for example, Doug Sosnick, who's a legendary Democratic operative, suggested this morning in his quarterly insider memo that abortion is the place to be this year and that that's the one chance Democrats have. Does that fit on, where does that fit on your list of what uh, Democrats can do? What do you make of the argument that that's it? And are there other specific issues that you've got, you're thinking about where Democrats can make that argument effectively? And one of the things I'd like to add is I think that it's the potential effective issues are those that directly go to voters' hearts because, and by that I mean, how do we, how do we get them emotionally involved on our side because they feel so bad? Despite the good news out there, they're all, they're feeling bad. And, and because we're the party in power, that's, that's our that's our boulder to push uphill. No, that, that's that's 100% right and I do think that you've already had one vote on uh you know Roe v Wade and and there was a vote on codifying that which was not 100% but mostly on partisan lines and I think certainly after the opinion which we don't know if it'll look like what was leaked but I think the expectation is certainly in substance that it'll have the same whenever the court comes out with that opinion I would imagine that you'll see democrats return to votes on that and and that you you need to make people feel good but you also need to any election is is, is a combination of keeping your base engaged and and then reaching across and so that balance some of the some of the those fights you need to pick, even if certainly there's not going to be 60 votes to recodify Roe row in the United States Senate, but you have to have that that fight, or you have to potentially put then, because we don't know the ramifications of this ruling, but access to birth control could be on the could be on the ballot. And that's something that maybe Democrats will put on the floor to show the extremism of the other side. Or Republicans, uh, Rick Scott, the NRSC chairman, put out 
this very aggressive plan that would do things like sunset every federal department every five years. That means school funding. That means funding for local police and firefighters. That means going after Medicare and Social Security. I, I think you could certainly see uh, a series of votes that take on pieces of that plan to show how Republican leadership could be viewed as extreme. You've already seen President Biden and Democrats start to refer to the analysis that that plan would cause a $1,500 $1, tax increase on the average middle-class family. So certainly, and I'm not saying these things will happen, but you can, see, you can conceivably see those types of votes, things that show that Democrats are fighting. They are a contrast to the Republican alternative that could be too extreme. And when you're talking about programs, earned benefits, Medicare, Social Security, infrastructure investment, educational funding, these are things that resonate with people. Child care is an issue they could come back to. Their housing is certainly something that, that people are concerned about now and is seen as a driver of inflation. So there are certainly no shortage of issues where they could structure these votes to show where they stand heading into and kind of make the closing arguments heading into November. And just to follow up on that real quick, and we'll have to be real quick about it, just walk me through how you approach this. When you're sitting in the room, you know that Chuck Schumer is going to turn to you and he's, look, he's already hearing from all the senators in his caucus. All the Dems are like on his case. You got to do X, you got to do Y. So he's turning to you and he's saying, Ryan, what do we focus on here? There's only there's only a handful of things that we can really do we could, that we can only get floor time for. So what are you doing there? Are you talking to pollsters? Are you are you are you looking at, at data? Are you are you talking to senators' offices? Are you trying to fit? How are you how are you figuring out where you triage and focus that time? The short answer is yes. You're doing all of that, and it's very easy to look at at polling data, or you look at what you think your coalition, winning coalition is nationally. And those things are certainly kind of prerequisites, but but really particularly, you're also looking at the composition of your caucus. And, and you really, your members know their states and their districts best. And certainly members who are on the front line are not uh, shy about telling you what they think the best direction is. And they get a wide berth and a lot of deference. And sometimes that goes into as much shaping what doesn't get voted on as what does. That's, that's a really interesting point. Well, look, we have much more to ask Ryan McConaughey. We have to take a very, very quick break on WKXL. When we come back, there's a lot more in the playbook here that Democrats have tried in the past, can try this time around, and there's some evidence for what works and what doesn't. We're going to get into all of that with our guest, Ryan McConaughey, former right-hand man on that intersection of policy and politics to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer when we come back on WKXL and the Beyond Politics show in just a moment. Welcome back to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes, and our guest in this show, Ryan McConaughey, who was the go-to guy for Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer when he worked for Chuck. And Chuck was trying to figure out, what do we do on policy? What do we do on legislation? What do we do on the issues, the things we can control here in the Senate? And how does that relate to politics? How does that relate to the upcoming elections? In the first part of the show, we talked with former Congressman Hodes and with Ryan about their memories of being in tough cycles for Democrats in the past, and there have been many, and it looks like we're up against one now. And we all agreed that you have to kind of try everything. That's where I wanted to turn next with you, Ryan, is that something you suggested to me off the air before we started recording the show is that another angle Democrats can think about is sort of a problem solving, showing that 
they're addressing specific problems and issues that voters are facing. There's been a suggestion from Politico that this is Nancy Pelosi's throw spaghetti at the wall strategy, just pass a whole bunch of bills, even if they're not going anywhere, just on the right themes, gas prices, inflation, kind of get caught trying. Is that what you're seeing? Is that is that a component of what Democrats are doing? And is this something that Democrats can realistically get some traction on this time around? Yeah, it's definitely what I'm seeing. And it's it's a thing you have to do. And so your your earlier point about the Charlie Bass ad saying, I like Charlie, it's, it's a very similar thing to that. I think that members certainly understand that at this point in this time of the year, actually big time legislation getting through Congress is going to be few and far between for the next six months. And also the any one thing that any rank and file member can do to change the national economic environment. I mean, that, that's a lot for a member of Congress. But you have to show, again, it's, it's about making that personal connection. Like it's the, not just, I like Charlie, but hey, Charlie's trying to help. And so showing that you're aware of something, you're working on something. So whether it's, and, and the Biden administration has done this too. When gas prices went up, they, they went to release a million barrels a day from the SPR. Now they're passing gas, price gouging legislation through the House. These are these are not things that are necessarily intended or thought will ever cross the finish line, but at least it gives a member something. They can go back to a town hall meeting saying like, I'm, I know it. I'm on it. I'm working on something and I'm going to keep doing things. That doesn't necessarily always need to be legislation. That can be if there's a specific product, you know, or a specific problem in your district and you need to write commerce, you need to write FTC. It's like, you need to take a look at this. It's about getting the attention of the watchdogs and making sure that whatever's happening in your district, that they know about it. That's because you are making them focus on it as the representative of your constituents. And you've got, to, you've got to do those things. They're sort of necessary, but not sufficient. But you certainly, the flip side of it is just throwing up your hands and going, yeah, gas prices are high. I don't know what to do. And that, that is not what people elect people for. One thing that Doug Sosnick, who is a highly respected operative in the Democratic pantheon, argues is that given where we are in the election cycle, we're about six months Six months coming into a summer, we've got a war going on in Ukraine, inflation running running rampant. The stock market is heading for bear territory. Gas prices are high and COVID seems to be surging. A lot of impressions are already set for voters. You've suggested that one thing Dems can do is lean more on um, what's already been accomplished, as in we're not going to pass anything new, but look at all the good stuff. Look at all the good stuff we've done. Is anybody going to listen? Is it a possibility for Dems to talk about the good stuff they've done? And I guess one of the questions is... I'll ask it in a in in two parts. Are Dems better off viciously attacking the other side? I mean, viciously, uncharacteristically for Dems going after the other side for being evil, corrupt, and causing causing havoc, attaching them to all the bad things about Trump and the Supreme Court and Mitch McConnell and going after that tooth and nail? Or do we Talk about all the good stuff that we've done. I mean, I think I reject the part of the question, the or in that question, because it really does have to be both. And we'll, we'll see who comes out of the Pennsylvania Senate primary. I mean, but that's certainly you have, there are Republicans who are, who are running, who Senate, Senate and House Democrats are going to be 
pointing out the stakes there and whether it just goes from extreme social policy to association with January 6th type rhetoric or wherever that goes. But in terms of, but, but just that, or just reacting to the headline of the moment at this point, like you said, there's a lot that's baked in. That's it. It's been a long, especially with COVID, it's been a long trip this past 18 months, which feels like 18 years. And if you, and I think Democrats, this is not an original thought, but Democrats certainly have a self-inflicted wound where we started talking amongst ourselves about um, spending 3.5 trillion, not talking about what we were gonna spend it on, and then ultimately not actually moving anything yet, keeping hope alive. But if you if you go back and, and remove that sort of momentum killer, you have a very strong, very popular rescue package that, that helped people afford healthcare, meet basic needs. Coming out of the gate with that, you did a, you actually achieved a big bipartisan infrastructure bill, something that is very popular and something that has taken this infrastructure week for four years, and it's been infrastructure week for decades. I will say members are promoting those projects in their districts too. So it may not be, we did this huge bill, but I got this bridge fixed. The White House has an interactive map where projects are going now that members are gonna use to promote that. You are very possibly gonna have a competition bill this summer that's sort of bolstering our economy against China. So, and these are things that people in the moment and it's not to say that it's not going to make them less angry about gas prices, but it's a counterbalance. It's a, they're not going to be thinking about those things right now. And you need to remind people that there have been real tangible benefits to them from the last 18 months. It sounds like part of what you're suggesting here is a classic pivot strategy, right? Which is you have to, like, if you get a, asked a question in a debate, which is, by the way, how candidates tend to, I, I've worked for a lot of candidates, and they always address questions in terms of they picture themselves in a debate. And it's sort of, it's a good way to think about it, but it's also not because it's good in the sense that you do need to have firm what your story is. That's that's legitimately something you need to be able to do, not just for a debate, but if you're asked a question by a constituent or in a town hall or by a reporter, but it's also not the way most people encounter information about a candidate. They don't get a full narrative. They, they get a little tiny piece of it sometimes. But what you're suggesting, it seems to me, Ryan, is you need both sides of the coin and you need to be able to address what is on people's minds. They're angry about high gas prices. They're angry that it, it's biting into their, into their wallets. It, it's miserable. They, they feel it every week or so when they fill up, or maybe even more often, they feel it and it's squeezing them and they're angry and they're going to take it out on someone. So you've got to have something to say to that. But the other side of the coin, it seems to me, and Paul, this is what you were suggesting, is you've got to be able to draw a contrast. So I just, I kind of want to, you, you've said three things here, Ryan. I, I want to try and see if I'm, I'm, I'm tracking you right. One thing you've said is you can pick fights. So you can choose the ground you want to fight on and draw a big contrast on an issue that you think is to your advantage. Another thing you can do is you can make sure you're covered, throw spaghetti at the wall, the Nancy Pelosi thing, show that you're trying to solve problems, get caught trying. And then number three is you can take credit for the things you've done and kind of build a narrative of, I've done this. You can talk more about it. So let's, let's pull all that together here. What you're suggesting, it sounds like, is you, you build the ammunition. We almost did those out of order. You build the ammunition for yourself of what's your basic story? Here's what we've accomplished. You give yourself some coverage on 
issues that are on voters' minds. Here's what I'm doing on inflation. Here's what I'm doing on gas prices. Here's what I'm doing on the costs that are, that are biting into your, your paycheck. And then you go on attack and you draw that contrast on the issues that best suit you in your state and district. Is that a good synthesis? Did I, did I put that together right? Yeah, I think so. Because you certainly have to meet people where their frustration is first or else they're not going to listen to the other parts of that message. Um, and, you, and you've got to, hopefully, if you're doing, you're doing the, the work of a, of a good elected and a good campaign official, you've, you've built a level of understanding that they know who you are and what you've done. And they, they have that on. So that, that knowledge of what you've delivered for the district, what you've done. But no, that's, that is, I think you say, look, we have ideas. We're working on these problems for you going forward. And the alternative is not going to take you to a place you want to be. So sometimes uh, when I'm trolling the internet on Facebook, I get videos. And, and, and one of the videos that came across my Facebook feed recently was uh, a surfing video. And it showed a wave that, that, that just was an enormous wave. It was, it was, it was like a ten-story apartment building. It seemed, and there was one surfer. There were all these gaggle of surfers out there, but there was one surfer who took on that wave, and and somehow he managed this surfer to stay in the pipeline and not die. And I thought that was pretty remarkable given the size of the wave. So in the wake of my absolutely clobbering in 2010, one of the lessons I drew was you can't surf a tsunami. And I may be right, I may be wrong. So you're an expert. Can members of Congress separate from a wave when it's a wave year? Can How, how can you, as a member of Congress, surf a tsunami? Do you just attack? Do you say anything? Do you pretend you're not a member of Congress? Do you, what do you do to surf the tsunami? Because from where I sit, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a tsunami. I, I hear, I feel those rumblings and, and we've been talking about all the things Democrats might be able to do. Is it possible? Has it ever been done? And what do you do? And how do you advise? I'm hiring you. How, what, what are you going to tell me to do as a member of Congress to surf the tsunami besides retire and enjoy podcasting? Well, I mean, it's certainly difficult. And especially, in a, in a, even in the time since 2010, I think the, the nationalization of politics has only grown and the brand strength has only become either, either more of a uh, boon or a uh, burden to individual candidates. So uh, I think that if I was advising you or someone else going into that tsunami, I think I would be advising them to, to really do the things we've covered here. You have to remind people of your record, show them you're, you're working. But really at that point, especially in the closing phases of the campaign, it's got to be a contrast that is based on your individual characteristics versus your opponents versus what, what some of the really bad ideas that may be out there on the other side, like getting rid of Medicare or Social Security or zeroing out various programs that people don't think of them as programs. They think of them as things that they they've paid into and they've they've earned and I, and I also think it's got to be about it, it, it you can't you can't hide from the fact that you're in Congress and you shouldn't be ashamed of it but you also shouldn't be af afraid to stake out territory where 
you're selectively creating separation with the national brand. So if you don't, you, you shouldn't pick an issue to be separate just to be separate. You've got to stay authentic. If you think, for example, I like that, I think this Title 42 fight has been an example where the Biden administration, and not to get too wonky, it's basically a public health, but it's also an immigration uh, issue. And the Biden administration was looking to uh, loosen up an, an immigration restriction. And you saw a number of Democrats say like, hey, you don't you don't have enough of a plan in place yet to do this. We need to know more. And that, that was their way of saying like, hey, I'm not just a I'm not just a, a rubber stamp D and getting rid of this may not might not work for my district. People have concerns. So I'm going to separate myself a little bit. And that's got to be part of it, too. It's got to be about individual identity and contrast with your opponent. Right. Well, that's why Senator Maggie Hassan, where we're on air in New Hampshire and Senator Maggie Hassan, who is a pretty reliable vote for the Democrats on most issues, went to the southern border and said that she was against lifting Title 42. So, I, I mean, you, you do see that strategy. I'll tell you, it's not a perfect parallel because, Paul, your question was about a wavier. And I think that's a different it's a different animal when you're in a wavier, because what you're what you see in a dynamic like that is a massive turnout difference. And it's a, it's a selection of where the turnout is coming from, who's motivated to show up. So it's not a perfect parallel, but I managed a congressional race kind of like this, where you, where you, you faced, we faced a, a challenge of a member of Congress, an incumbent who was well underwater. He was picked by expert prognosticators as the most likely Democrat in the country to lose his seat. This was in 2012. And what did we do? We, we did what Ryan basically just suggested. We tried to address issues that were on voters' minds in kind of half a breath. And all of our advertising was basically focused on, we would devote half a breath to, I know this is, here's our line on this concern. Here's our line on that concern. And then we would pivot. And we would go full bore attack on the contrast of, but what you have to realize is that our opponent is so extreme. And our opponent, he said a few things that weren't even really gaffes. He, he kind of, the, the Republicans had adopted an anti-abortion plank in their platform at the national convention. I mean, this is so in the weeds. And when asked about it by a reporter, our opponent said, eh, it is what it is. Well, we used that. We put that front and center in an ad we said, it is what it is. Are you kidding me? What it is is too extreme. That, that this is someone who is against abortion in all circumstances. And so you can see something in that playbook where, by the way, we eked it out. We, we won and we were called out as the most unlikely upset in the country that year. And you can see elements in there, of Ryan, of what you're talking about, which is you do have to address what's on voters' minds. But you have to turn to a reason and say, for them to say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. The alternative is much worse and I'm going to hold my nose. I don't ultimately care as a campaign manager if someone is holding their nose to vote for my gal or my guy, as long as I get the vote at the end of the day. No, that's that, that's 100% right. And, uh, and and this this actually goes back to some of the debate over the uh, the Biden campaign in 2022 about sort of base enthusiasm versus reaching out and an unenthusiastic vote counts just as much as an enthusiastic one. And and and, and all, but also these are these are real. I mean, contrast stuff. It's not. I mean, it's real. It, it, it's about there's a there's a difference in in the agenda depending on who's in control. So it's it's not an illegitimate topic to talk about by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that that's that's where some of these and that that 
that goes back to the discussion we were having earlier, where if you're sitting in the front line of that race and you're saying, okay, here's the contrast I need to draw, then you go to your leadership and say, this is the contrast I'm trying to draw. What can we do here? Like this is this is this would this would be a really helpful vote, or this would be a really harmful vote for me. How can we show that? And and that's that's where the sort of inside outside dynamic can take on some relevance. And Paul, you used to do this kind of thing because you were a frontline is is what they call it. Like you were a frontline member of Congress, meaning you were in a a tough seat, and you used to have the ability to go to Nancy Pelosi, and they would they would try hard to put you in a position to draw the contrasts you needed to draw and to be able to say, okay, I need to, because you don't know, you ended up in that 08 campaign, you ran an ad on a piece of legislation that you managed to get passed, that they made a high priority for you, but also on a piece of, so you don't know what it is that you're going to need. And they're looking to hear from you about this is what in, in my race, this is the, this is the arrow I need to put in my quiver. Yeah, I mean, leadership has leadership is is going to be responsive and has to be responsive, even right down to as a, as a member of Congress, I'd go to leadership and say, listen, do you need me on this vote? Because I really need to vote the other way. I just I, I, I I'm with you. I love you. I, I, I'd go your way ordinarily, but I've got to have this. Do you have the votes? When I was on, I was on the whip team. I was on Jim Clyburn's whip team. So I had often. Meaning you, you were responsible to leadership. Yeah. Getting the votes. I was responsible to leadership for getting votes. And I'd have to go on some votes and say, look, you know, I know, I know you where I am and what's going on, but I've got to ask for this. I don't do it often, but I, I need, I need your, I need your understanding on this. And more often than not, I get it. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's one of the elements I, I mentioned at the top of the show that I had this article. It may be out by the time people are listening to this. Uh, it's in Newsweek, and it's basically the the title, unless the editor changes it somewhat, is. Are Democrats going to lose in the midterms? Yes, but maybe that's the wrong question. And one of my suggestions in the article is that the question we should really be asking is, can Democrats keep it close? Because if you think to yourself, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, you're wrong. It makes a big difference to operate in a huge majority versus a slim majority. So if Democrats can just limit their losses Believe me, that is a major win in a cycle like this, given where all the polling is. So, Ryan, I want to turn that around as a question to you, because what Paul just outlined was one of the differences you can have if you have a fat majority versus a super slim majority. If Democrats can manage to keep their losses in the House, for example, to 15 seats, 20 seats, which is about where the modeling puts it right now, as opposed to like a 40 seat wipeout like Republicans experienced in 2018. The difference that you get is that when someone like Paul, who's in a close district, has to go to his leadership and say, I got I got to vote the other way. I got to vote against you on this one. You have you have a margin to play with. You can do that. And that helps protect those members who are in those tough seats. So Ryan, what do you make? This is a dangerous question because you might tell me that I'm full of it, but what do you make of my argument here that what Democrats have to think about in terms of the midterms isn't just the, are you going to lose the House or not? It seems very likely Democrats are going to lose the House. The question is more, are you going to get wiped out 
or are you going to lose and hand the Republicans a slim majority? What, what do you make of that? Well, sure, you always want to hold on to every seat you can, want to hold on to all your members regardless, and certainly you want the majority. But the, the, I mean, look at what look at what the, the tightrope that uh, Speaker Pelosi and, and Leader Schumer have had to walk in this Congress. Even there's a difference between a 51 or 52 seat majority of the Senate versus a 50-50 split with the VP. Speaker Pelosi at various times because of absences or COVID is basically operating with a majority that, that she can count on one hand, and that includes members. Part of part of the, the trouble getting a budget res- resolution done or ultimately needing Republican votes on the bipartisan infrastructure law was because she had a six-seat majority, not a 16 or 26 majority. So now you take that going forward, particularly in the House, and this was back in the Boehner-Paul Ryan days when the Freedom Caucus sort of guaranteed 80 no votes for any Republican majority, that greatly empowered Pelosi and Democrats because to pass the must needed things, you needed Democratic votes. Imagine a Speaker McCarthy who has to keep his sort of problem solver moderates in the same boat with now a, based on who comes in, and we'll see what the specific candidates are, but a potentially even greater in number kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert wing and getting them to see eye to eye on, on anything is very difficult. So if he only has a handful of votes to lose, Nancy Pelosi very much keeps her seat at the table in terms of what happens and what doesn't. It's hugely important. Well, there are many other arguments for why we should rethink what the goalposts truly are here. And I get into all of them in the Newsweek article. So we're going to have to wrap here. So I commend that Newsweek article to folks. You can check that out on newsweek.com. You could search for it under me, or if you remember the title that I mentioned before, uh, you can search under that. And if you're interested in hearing more from Ryan McConaughey, you're going to have to listen to this show because this is the place that you get him here on Beyond Politics. Ryan, you're one of our favorite guests. We've had you. You're, you're at three. You're three appearances for us now. It's not like Saturday Night Live. You don't get a jacket. I was going to say, is there a five-timers club? Do I get there, you, you know what? We just invented one. There's a five-timers club. So we're going to have you back two more times at some point, and we're going to get you a jacket. So with that, thanks so much to Ryan, and thanks to my co-host, former Congressman Paul Hodes, and we will see you next time on Beyond Politics. Thanks. Great to be here.